0: Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hands from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds holds fast my covenant, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered.
1: Isaiah 57 verses 14 through 18. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I had made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners.
2: Isaiah 58, verses 6 through 10. Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, then shall, you, then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry, and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday.
3: Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair, With water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire.
4: Well, it's easy for us, beloved, in our pride, to begin thinking that. When we come to God, it's mainly our task to come and to offer something to God that He would not otherwise have, something that He could not have without us. Instead of coming to God the way that we should indeed come, which is always coming, understanding that we are the recipients of mercy, we are the recipients of grace, and there's no way that we could ever possibly outgive what God has already given to us. Indeed, all of our obedience, any act of worship, worship, or giving that we could ever perform for God is always only a response to God, to what God has already done. There's no way for us to come to God apart from the fact that He already has come to us. And so understanding that all of our Christian life is actually a life of response to the grace of God is so liberating and so comforting because we realize that every act we do is never, never in order to gain God's favor, in order to do something for God that he couldn't otherwise have. But it's always simply our act of humble acknowledgement, of humble worship, of all that God has done and simply trying to reflect something of what he gives. Now, unfortunately, it's easy for us oftentimes, I think especially in our Western, more syllogistic, logical way of thinking to fall into the trap of of either-or thinking when it comes to this grace of God that's poured out and the response to this grace that we are supposed to give. We think that it's either-or instead of both-and. Now, there's many examples of this fallacy of either-or thinking in our world today. In fact, it's even a a logical fallacy that has a name. It's called the, the fallacy of the false dilemma. When you present something, that you present it as either or, when in reality it's both and. But oftentimes when we're facing some problem, we'll think, well, either this thing is my fault or this thing is their fault. When in reality, probably the case is that you both contributed to the problem. Or if we're not happy in our job, well, we think either I can quit my job and pursue my dreams or I can be miserable for the rest of my life. But it doesn't have to be either or. Maybe your job is a good stepping stone or maybe there's a way to find joy in your work as you have it right now. So it's not either or. Or an example that politicians often like to use, they say either you support me or you don't care about X issue. But of course, it's not true. Maybe I do care a lot about this issue, but I just don't agree with how you're handling it. And so you can't equate things that way. And so we're very prone to thinking in this either-or nature when in reality we should be thinking in this both-and nature. Now there are some things in the world that are both-and, to be sure. We must choose good and reject evil, but we can't do both. Or as James 4.4 says, either we can be a friend of the world or we can be a friend of God, but we can't do both. So there are certain dichotomies in the world where we have to choose one or the other, and we can't have things both ways. But most of the time in the Scriptures, we find two things that may be intention in some way, but we're intended to keep them together. And so, when it comes to the dichotomy that some people see between the grace of God and the responsibility that we have to be faithful to God, the way Scripture portrays this is not as a dichotomy at all, but two things that must be held together. Yes, God is full of grace and mercy and we don't need to diminish that in the least or neglect that in the least. But on the other hand, we do have a responsibility to live for God and to live obediently for Him. Now, how exactly these two things always go together, it is not 100% clear, but what is clear is that both of these things are true and therefore we must come to understand both of these things and give both of these things their full weight. Another... False dichotomy that I've heard portrayed with regard to Christian obedience too is that some people acknowledge that God must indeed change our hearts if we are to be obedient to him. And yet, obviously, it is also an obligation that we must be obedient to him. And so the mistake that people can sometimes make is to think, well, I can't really be obedient until God has changed my heart. So that means that right now, I really can't be obedient in any way. I just need to wait for God to change my heart, and then I can be obedient. But again, both truths are always presented in Scripture side by side. Yes, God must change your heart in order for you to be obedient. But yes, you also must be obedient today, right now. You can't wait until tomorrow, or a week from now, or a month from now, or years from now. And so these things are mysterious, how exactly they work together. But what is very clear is that they must indeed go together. Indeed, in one case where Jesus was addressing someone who had much wealth and uh, and they were wondering, well, how can I serve God uh, when I have all this wealth that the Lord has given me? Isn't the Lord just leading me to stay with all this wealth I have? Uh, Jesus, in this parable, in Luke 12, 20, he says, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And all of these things that you have stored up, where will they be? And so he's saying that even today you must respond, whether or not you feel that God has come with this prevenient grace or not, today is the day of salvation. As it says in 2 Corinthians 6, And so we must always keep these two things together, that God is a God of mercy and that we must be obedient. And yes, God must come and work in our hearts. And yes, we also must follow God and be obedient to him today, not waiting on the Lord. So I say all of these things because I want to remove any obstacles that may be in your mind about the necessity of responding to the grace of God. Perhaps the obstacle to you responding to the grace of God is that you do think you are totally forgiven and so your actions don't matter much anymore. Or perhaps you think that God just hasn't changed your heart yet and so you don't really need to be obedient to Him this morning. Or perhaps there's some other reason you have in mind why you don't need to be obedient to God. Or perhaps you're like that rich man that Jesus was addressing in Luke, and you think that you have a lot more time to sort your life out, and so you don't really need to respond to God today. You don't need to get your act together today. You can be patient. But, beloved, all of these things are wrong ways of thinking. We must be obedient to God. And so I want to look at our passage this morning about how the Scriptures call us to respond rightly to the grace of God. Not to respond in such a way that we are just taking things on our own shoulders, saying we are offering this to God, something that He has not done for us, but also not neglecting the obedience which God requires. So while I don't know what may be going on in your head or in your heart this morning that might lead you to think that, well, I don't really need to respond to God right now. You know, my life is on a pretty good track. I don't need to change today. I don't need to be obedient today. But again, whatever is in your mind that prevents you from simply walking in obedience to God, understand that that thing is a lie from the pit of hell. Satan wants to do everything he can to prevent our obedience to God. And so any rationalization that we ever come up with to say, I don't really have to be obedient in this way, we must understand that this is just a deception from the dark powers trying to get us to walk away from the living God. And so when we come to Isaiah 56 to 59, we do come to a passage that's very rich in speaking of God's grace. That's what we just looked at last week. But it's also very rich in speaking of human depravity. And that's where we went two weeks ago. And so this passage has all of these things in it that might lead us to think that, well, Because this passage talks so much about the grace of God, it won't talk so much about the human response to God. But again, that's where we would be mistaken. Because just as firmly as this passage emphasizes God's grace, how he brings about salvation all by himself, apart from any works of man, at the same time, this passage gives us commands that we must follow if we want to be on the side of the living God. In particular, this passage gives us three different responses that our hearts are supposed to have to the grace of God. Three different responses that our hearts are supposed to have to the grace of God. And so for the remainder of this message, I want to look at those three different responses. So I'm going to label the first response, the expectant response to the grace of God. The second response we're supposed to have, I'm going to label the trusting response. And then the third response we're supposed to have, I'm going to label the wondrous response. So the expectant response, the trusting response, and the wondrous response. And so I believe that if our hearts are shaped by grace in these three ways, then we will respond to God's grace rightly with obedience. So first, the expectant response. The expectant response is the very first one we see in Isaiah 56-59. to If you look at Isaiah 56, just the very first verse, It says, thus says the Lord. Now pause there for just a moment and consider the weight of that opening line. That opening line is in the scripture. It's in God's word and it says, thus says the Lord. God's word is claiming to present to us the very words of Almighty God. The Bible is about to report something that the God of the universe has actually said. It's not for no reason that we call the Bible the Word of God or that we try to shape our lives around studying and knowing this Word of God because these are words that God Himself has spoken. And now listen to what the words of God say. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Now, First, we see the the command, the response that we are supposed to have to God's grace. The response we're supposed to have is a response of keeping justice and doing righteousness. That's the command that God has for us. And so every Christian must in their lives, in some way, strive to keep justice and do righteousness. But then notice the grounds for keeping justice and doing righteousness. What's the rationale? Why should we do this? You'll see that little word for in verse 1. So this is telling us the reason why we should keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. So in other words, the the keeping of justice and the doing of righteousness is a response to this fact that God's salvation is coming into the world. God is saying, my salvation is coming because my salvation is coming. Therefore, keep justice and do righteousness. God is saying that if you could see the salvation that I'm just about to bring, then you would really want to keep justice and do righteousness. This is exactly the mode that we hear John the Baptist teaching in when we read in Matthew 3. When John the Baptist would come and he would say, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. He's saying that God's salvation is coming. And so you better get ready. Indeed, back in Isaiah 56, we see that people were not to respond to the grace of God because they had already received something. They were to respond to the grace of God because something they expected to receive, because of something that was coming in the future. So if you go to Isaiah 56, beginning in verse 3, it says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. So he's saying, You can't be discouraged. You're not allowed to be discouraged. And then verse 4, For thus says the Lord to the eunuch's who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And then he addresses the foreigners. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps my Sabbaths and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offering and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So do you see how over and over again, what God is promising to these people who have every reason to be in despair, who have every reason to be in discouraged, he's saying there is a future salvation coming. I will one day pour out my mercy. One day my house will be for you and I will accept your offerings. Those things aren't happening right now. You may look around you right now and it seems like everything's going bad. It seems like your life is bad. It seems like the world is falling apart. But if you look forward to my salvation, then you will respond rightly to me. Then you really will want to keep justice and do righteousness because you see the future that is coming. And so when we look at the future salvation that's coming, we realize that we want to live now in connection with what will be true in the future. One of the best concrete biblical examples of this, I know, of someone who did this even in an excruciatingly hard circumstance, is the example of Rahab in the city of Jericho. Now, if you We'll remember the story of Jericho. The people of Israel had just been wandering in the desert for 40 years, and they just come out of the desert, and the first city they get to is Jericho, and God tells them to take down this city Jericho. And the city Jericho has huge walls, and it's well defended, and so the people inside Jericho have every right to think, you know what, I'm pretty safe inside these walls. You know, these people just came out of a whole generation wandering in the desert, they don't have great weapons. They're not a great army. Um, how are they going to defeat our city? And so they lived in comfort within Jericho. But there was one person in Jericho, in this wicked city, a prostitute named Rahab. And she looked forward to what God was doing. And because she looked forward to what God would do in the future, she lived differently in her city in that present day. Whereas everybody in her city wanted to resist the Israelites and fight against them, she realized that God was actually giving the city to the Israelites. And so in faith, because she realized what God was doing, she said, I want to get on the side of the Israelites right now. I don't want to wait until I'm conquered and I'm the enemy and I'm possibly killed. No, I know they're going to win. I know God is going to give them the victory. So right now, I'm going to be for them. And so she hid the spies that were sent from Israel, and she did everything she could to help them because she believed what God would do in the future. She took her life into her hands. The people of her city suspected her, and they thought that maybe she had done something to help these spies. But she still braved their, their hatred. She braved their suspicion because she knew that, that these other people that God had sent had the ultimate victory. And so because Rahab expected the eventual victory of the Israelites, she lived differently than the rest of the people in the city of Jericho. Instead of getting ready for defense or cowering in fear, she joined the other side and God delivered her life And she is indeed in the line of Jesus himself. And so Jesus also frames the coming of salvation today in the same way. You'll remember when Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount and he gives the Beatitudes, these upside down instructions for how we are to live today. When Jesus is telling us how to live today, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You see, in all of these things, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, look at the salvation that's coming. Look at the satisfaction you will receive. Look at what you will inherit. Look at how you shall be comforted. And if you see what is coming in the future, you will live differently today. Not because it's going to make your life better today, Not because everything is going to work out today, but because you truly believe that God's salvation is coming and you want to be ready for it. You want to be on the side of what God is doing. There is a word of comfort here and there is a word of warning. Is there not? I mean, if you are someone who is mourning now, or if you are someone who is hungering and thirsting for righteousness now, but you're not experiencing immediate satisfaction, then the encouragement is to take heart because your reward is still coming. Because all of God's salvation is not here today. It's yet out there. And so don't give up. Hold on to the future that God is bringing. But there's also a word of warning. Are you living today as if God's salvation, God's kingdom is winning and will win? Or are you living like the American middle-class lifestyle is the wave of the future and will last forever. Are you responding to God in such a way so as to say, God, I expect your kingdom to destroy every other kingdom and so let me be on your side and on your side alone? Or are you living with dual allegiances, saying, well, maybe I can enjoy this pleasure over here, but then I can still enjoy God over here. But if you're living that way, you're not realizing the salvation The promise of what the Lord is bringing to the earth. When we truly believe that God's salvation is coming, it changes how we live today. Because it changes what we believe about what's going to happen in the future and who's actually blessed right now and who's going to be well off in the end. God's ultimate blessing is not for the person who has a million dollars in the bank today. It's for the person who's given up all that he has for the poor, and for the oppressed. And if we believe that the reward is coming to us, then we will live differently today. So that's the first way that we are to respond to God's grace. We are to respond expectantly. When we see His grace is coming into the world and all the salvation that He's bringing, we want to live by the beat of this future that is coming. The second way we are to respond to God's grace is the trusting response. The trusting response. In Isaiah 57, 15, it says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And So this is the second way that we are to respond to God's grace. It's the trusting response. Notice how in this verse in particular, in 57.15, God is enticing us to come to him, right? He's not beating us with sticks here, saying, you better come to me. No, he's trying to draw us with carrots. He's trying to draw us, ultimately, with the beauty of his character. First, he establishes who he is. He says, I am the one who is high and lifted up who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. So he gives us this exalted description of his character. And then he tells us about where he dwells. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. And after he says where he dwells, he finally says what he does. He says to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. To read a verse like that, doesn't it just make you want to draw near to God at once? When you hear that he is this high and holy God, but he's also this God who wants to comfort those who are brokenhearted and lowly. You see, grace, especially the the grace that we behold in Jesus Christ, has this way of just making you trust the character of a person. It has a way of making you love a person because of just how beautiful grace itself is. Romans 5, 7, and 8 says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Beloved Jesus, death shows us the extent of God's love. If God would love us so much to even crucify his own son, how could we not trust him? How could we not want to run to him in the midst of every trial we face, even when we sin, if he already gave his son, if he already crucified him, who could love us more than that? Who could welcome us more than that? Just consider in the life of Jesus how he treated sinful women. There was the woman at the well that Jesus met. She had slept around with several men and the man that she was with wasn't her husband. And yet Jesus cared for her and offered her living water and listened to her story. There was the woman who was caught in adultery when everyone else wanted to stone her. Jesus called out their hypocrisy and he protected her. There was the immoral woman that came to the dinner that he was having with the Pharisees and the Pharisees were rejecting her saying, don't you know that this is an immoral woman? And yet as this woman washed Jesus' feet with her hair, he accepted her faith and he blessed her. Don't you see how gentle God is with the weak and with the sinful? Beloved, when you see the, the character of God, then you cannot help But to trust Him, you cannot help but to draw near to Him. You cannot help but to trust God more than you would even trust your own spouse, more than you would trust whatever human being you trust more than anyone else. Other human beings will always let you down, but God never will let you down. He will never cast you out if you come to Him with a broken spirit. When you have come to understand grace, you will draw near to God. Not because you're told that you have to, but because you see God's good character and you are drawn in to his confidence. How much do you draw near to God, beloved? Do you really trust God's character? Do you really trust that he really is gentle with those who are contrite and broken hearted? If we truly understand the grace of God, then we truly see the character of God, and the character of God draws us into himself. And you can discern in your own life whether you're truly trusting the character of God by how much you are eager and willing to draw near to God. Because it is as we love his character and as we want to be near to him that it truly displays to the world that we trust the character of this God that we serve. So that's the second response to grace that we were supposed to have. We're supposed to have this trusting response to grace. The third and final response to grace that this passage speaks to is what I'm calling the wondrous response to grace. The wondrous response. In Isaiah 58, verses 6 and 7, we read these words. It says, "'Is not this the fast that I choose?' To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? You see, this is a very high command from the Lord, is it not? to care for the oppressed and to care for the poor in such a way, even to welcome the homeless poor into your own house. Again, this is supposed to be a response to God's grace. And for the Israelite people, these commands, these commands to help the poor and to help the oppressed, ultimately spring from their experience as slaves in Egypt. Listen to these words from Deuteronomy 15, 12 to 15. This is when God initially gives the people of Israel this kind of command to care for the poor and the oppressed. So Deuteronomy 15, beginning in verse 12, "...if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed, You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. Do you see how God is calling them to respond to his grace? He's saying, remember how you were slaves in Egypt and I set you free. And if you were a slave in Egypt and I set you free, then when you have a slave and you set your slave free, shouldn't you want to do the same thing for them that I did for you, just as I cared for you and I gave you food and I gave you a land and all these things? Shouldn't you also desire to care for these people who were formerly enslaved, to give them these things? And so when it comes to Isaiah, and Isaiah is also calling them to the same thing, to care for the poor, care for the oppressed. He is commanding them these things out of this whole redemptive history that the people of Israel have had. You see, the people of Israel were supposed to be so amazed by what God had done for them, so in awe of the grace that they had received as slaves in Egypt, That they would just naturally be eager to do the same thing for other people. When you truly appreciate what Christ has done for you, you are so awed, so thankful, so entranced with what Christ has done that you seek to, you seek to show the same beauty in your own life. You can think of someone who maybe had no interest in painting, but then they see a Van Gogh or they see a Da Vinci or they see a Michelangelo and suddenly they're like, wow, it would be so amazing if I could create that same thing. And so they want to go and they want to learn how to paint so that they can make something as beautiful. Or someone who maybe never thought of themselves as a writer, but then they read some book that just so impacts their lives that they think, wow, I would really love to be able to write something like that to impact other people the way that I myself have been helped. Or somebody that maybe had no interest in cooking, but then they eat something and it tastes so amazing, it tastes so good, they think, wow, I really want to learn how to make that. I've never cooked before, but I really wish I could do that because that is just so good. Well, beloved, that's the same response that we are to have to the grace of God when we see just how good the grace of God is for our souls. How beautiful it is, how excellent it is, how much it satisfies us. It should be our natural response to grace then to say, I would love to go and be able to do that same thing for others. Not that we could ever duplicate what God has done for us, because clearly we are not God, but imitate in our own small way. This principle is Expanded on at length in Matthew chapter 18 when Jesus gives what's called the parable of the unforgiving servant. Let me just read this parable for you. Jesus says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servant. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's a lot of money. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. It's a very small amount. So... His fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience on me, and I will pay you. But it says he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servant saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on On You You see the sort of obedience that God was requiring of this forgiven servant. It wasn't the sort of obedience that just said, you are now commanded to forgive, so you must go and forgive this other debt. No, it was this obedience that said, do you know how it felt when I forgave you that debt of 10,000 talents? Do you remember how the mercy just rushed over your soul? How you felt so liberated from not having this debt anymore? Do you remember how glorious it was for that to happen? Now, if, if you really felt the wonder of that happening, don't you want to recreate that experience for somebody else? Don't you want to display that same beauty, that same mercy that you received in the life of someone else? And so the point of the story is not that you have been forgiven, so now you are commanded to forgive, as if it were a matter of obedience. You know, the point as the story is to say that you have been forgiven so much and you feel so much freedom in that forgiveness. Don't you want to now forgive? And so even in Isaiah when he is proclaiming to the people that their responsibility is to care for those who are oppressed, to care for those who are poor. It is out of this idea that they themselves were once slaves, that they themselves were once poor. That now they care for those who are in that same situation because they have beheld the grace of God extended to them. And so we are to have this wondrous response to grace. We are to be so amazed by what God has done in Jesus Christ, by the mercy He has shown, by the care that He's shown to people who are as poor as we are, who are as wayward as we are. And we are to desire to go and show that same sort of mercy. And care to others. Beloved, are you fully appreciating the mercy that God has shown you? And as you appreciate that mercy that God has shown you, are you then led to go out and to show the same mercy to others? Can you do that with a heart of joy, with a heart of gratitude? Or does it simply seem like a weight and a burden? If it simply seems like a weight and a burden, that probably means that you have not yet fully experienced. The grace of God in your own life. You haven't experienced the joy, the wonder of it. Because when you experience the wonder of it, that's when you want to go and you want to serve others in the same way. And so in these three ways, grace compels us to respond to God. When we receive the grace of God, it doesn't make us just kind of sit on our earnings or say, well, thank you, Lord, for this mercy. Thank you for this grace. I guess I can now have a comfortable life. No, when we receive the grace of God, it empowers us to go out and take risks because we see a greater salvation that is still coming. It empowers us to draw near to the Father daily because we see how much He loves us, because we see the beauty of His character. And then finally, the grace of God also calls us to go out and serve those who are poor, those who are lost, those who are far from God, because we are simply in wonder that God would do that very thing for us. And so, beloved, let's pray that we would be a people that fully understand, that fully comprehend the grace of God that has come through Jesus Christ. And as we understand the grace of God that has come through Jesus Christ, may that shape us into the sort of people that want to respond to God's grace in all these ways, in love for Him, in love for others, taking risks because of the future that is coming. Let's spend a few moments now to pray together as a people that God would work each of these things into our hearts, So I'll open us and we can pray for a minute or two just in reflection on the message and then I'll transition us into a time of praying for the world around us. Heavenly Father, we truly are astounded by the grace that you have poured out in Jesus Christ. Lord, we are astounded both because of the the cost of it that Jesus had to give his life and we are in awe because of how absolutely undeserved it was. Lord, that though we are utterly sinful, dead in our sins, that you nevertheless would send your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning, especially who maybe has not had their heart yet melted by this grace, who is not yet in awe of this grace. Lord, that their heart would be melted by it so that they could live as this person of grace in all the ways that I've just described. Lord, would you hear this prayer and would you hear other prayers of response now as we come to you?